Our scripture reading this, uh, this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3. As we've been working our way through Philippians, our text that we'll be focusing on is Philippians 3, verses 15 and 16. But to put that in context, we'll read the entire chapter. So Philippians 3, verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of God through the Apostle Paul. He writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. <coughs> so far, the word of God. 
Let's sing in response as we reflect on this from hymn 26. Also, the text that we'll be focusing on this morning is especially the verses 15 and 16. And since it's only two verses, let's read those again now. Philippians 3 verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we find ourselves focusing only on two verses, and especially even on just a single verse and a half, the second half of verse 15 and all of verse 16. And the reason for that is because we're trying to our best to follow Paul's flow of thought here in, in the letter to the Philippians. And two weeks ago, when we looked at verses 1 through 15, or the first half of 15, those were all one unit, and they were driving home one single point. And so I figured it was better not to divide them, but then to take them as, as a whole. That's Paul's pursuit of counting himself together with Christ. But here in, in verses 15 and 16, Paul seems to be making a second point, a separate point, just as sort of an aside, and it's a unique point and it's an important point that's worth reflecting on for us as a church. So in, in verses 1 through 15, the, the point was Paul's daily pursuit to be counted with Christ and to identify himself with Christ by not having a righteousness of his own, but that which comes through Christ, and by being made like Christ in his suffering. He says uh, it's his desire to be made like Christ in his suffering and even in his death. And so verses 1 through 15 is all about Paul's pursuit to be counted together with Christ in every way, so that he would also be raised with Christ on the final day. And then he finishes that by saying, Brothers, join in imitating me in that. We're all called to, to that same pursuit, to count ourselves together with Christ, both in, in taking on his righteousness instead of our own, and in taking on his sufferings as our own. But now, in verse 15, Paul concludes that point, and as he does so, he makes a second point as sort of an aside. He says, verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And that can only possibly refer to the, the way that he has just described in verses 1 through 15. Making it your daily effort to be counted with Christ. And then he adds, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, let me first explain what Paul is not saying there, because the English translation can be a little misleading. The way it's translated, it, it almost sounds like Paul might be saying, let those of us who are mature think in this way, but if you don't think in this way, well, don't worry, God will reveal that also to you. That's not 
what Paul is saying. That would mean Paul is sort of leaving all of the instruction of verses 1 to 14 as, as something that's optional. You know, if you think this way, that's, that's good. If you don't, well, God will reveal something else to you. Like, here's how I approach Christian life, but if you don't approach it that way, then, then God will tell you how you should approach it. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not leaving the instruction of 1 through 14 as something that's optional. And, and the way you know that is because the first part of verse 15 is a command. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, not any other way. And he says uh, in, in the same chapter later, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. So what then does the second part of verse 15 mean? Well, there's a few clues in the Greek, two especially, and so I'll point them out to you, and then I'll say what I believe this verse is really saying. First, there's that key phrase, if in anything. You see that in the second half of verse 15, if in anything you think otherwise, which tells us that Paul is not talking here about his instructions in verses 1 through 15 or 1 through 14, but he's now referring to other issues, if in anything. So it's, it's something else. It's a general statement. And you might better translate that as, if there's any point on which you think differently, then God will reveal that also. Secondly, the, the you in this verse is plural. That's not something you can see in the English because we use the same word for you in the plural and you in the singular, unless you're in the South and you say y'all, or you're in Australia and you say yous. But in, in our English, we just have the one word. But in Greek, it's, it's very clearly distinguished. It's, and, and he uses a plural you. It's, it's you all. So he's not talking to individuals who disagree with him, but he's speaking to the community as a whole, referring then to differences of opinion that exist within the community as a whole. And so a better translation than a verse 15 might be something like this. Let those who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, then God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So again, focus on that first line. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves. So he's not talking about his instruction in verses 1 through 14, but something else. If there's any issue in the community that I haven't addressed, but there are differences of opinion, then then God will reveal those also to you and let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, there's, there's four points that we can take away then from these two verses. The first point is fairly straightforward and self-evident. Differences of opinion do exist within the Christian church. On this side of eternity, that's simply inevitable. It's true of every individual congregation, and it's certainly also true of the the global Christian church as a whole. Differences of opinion do exist. And you have to understand, this has been a big theme in the letter to the Philippians. It's never really been far from Paul's mind. The reality is there will be differences of opinion on various issues in any church, and Paul was aware of that, and he was concerned that, that the Philippians might not know how to handle those differences of opinion. And you can see that concern throughout the entire letter to the Philippians. 
Let's just take a look at a few other verses in this letter. Already in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that was one of his big concerns, that the Philippians' love for the Lord and for each other would grow. We saw that at the very first sermon in this series. And that they would also grow in knowledge and discernment because any church, and especially a missionary church, there was much for them to learn. So his prayer is that they would grow in knowledge. There's, there's this saying that, that doctrine divides, but love unites. And you might, some might even point to chapter 3, verse 15 as, as proof of that. But if you look at 1, verse 9, Paul's prayer is that their love would abound as well as their knowledge and discernment. We shouldn't pit those two against one another. And then in in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells the Philippians, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of, of the gospel. All three of those expressions, one spirit, one mind, side by side, and you might even add the faith of the gospel, all of those have to do with agreement and unity of, of mind. And Paul wrote this way because he recognized differences of opinion will come. They are a reality that the church has to deal with, and, and they can be destructive if the church doesn't know how to handle those differences and to know how to come to agreement. And we notice, it's good to notice, especially from that verse, the goal is agreement. Agreement is a good thing. In our, in our relativistic culture, it's often seen as a bad thing if, if a whole church of 350 people all agree as if we're, we're some kind of echo chamber. But agreement, biblically, is a good thing. That's one of Paul's greatest concerns in this letter to the Philippians, that the Philippians would be characterized by that one mind. That and, and that that would be seen in their knowledge of the gospel, in their discernment, and in their exercise of the Spirit, that they would come together in agreement. You see that again in, in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, If there's anything you can do for me, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then one more text. You can see it just a few verses after our text. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul urges two sisters in that church, Eunice and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. So understand this well then. Unity in the church doesn't just mean getting along with those with whom we disagree, though it certainly does mean that. But ultimately it means coming to agreement through the Spirit. It means sharing the same doctrine and sharing the same conviction. Diversity is a beautiful thing in in many areas. Ethnic diversity, diversity of gifts. Paul talks about that, how the Lord has given various diverse gifts to to the church. Diversity of personalities. That's the way that God has, has made us. And even diversity of perspective can be a good and healthy thing. But diversity of doctrine is not 
a good thing. It's not something we're called to strive for. Now, as I say that, let me just back up and and acknowledge one thing. It's true that diversity of opinion and diversity of doctrine can at least be evidence of something else that's good that's happening, because at least it means we are thinking. Uh, Inevitably, if you're studying Scripture and you're thinking through it and meditating on it, you will come to differences of opinion. And those differences are not a good thing in themselves, but the fact that you're studying and working through Scripture uh, certainly is. So diversity of opinion can be reflective of, of a good thing. And if there's no diversity at all in a church, that might be a sign, though not necessarily, it might be a sign that nobody's thinking or studying Scripture at all. And that, of course, is not a good thing. And, of course, if we are busy with God's Word, working with God's Word, we ought also then to be tolerant of the reasonable diversity that will come as a result. But... Diversity of a doctrine, diversity of doctrine is not a good thing in and of itself, and it should never be our goal or something that we celebrate. Uh, I've seen this recently in a number of, of churches, not not Canadian Reformed churches, but but others. I think of one, especially in California, that uh, when when the U.S. legalized same-sex marriage, they celebrated the fact that there were diversities of opinions about that issue in in their church. That's not a thing to celebrate in and of itself. Diversity of doctrine is not something to celebrate. The goal is agreement in the truth, agreement by the one spirit with whom we all share. If we are each individually indwelt by God's spirit, then we ought to be characterized by an agreement in conviction of the truth, because that conviction is the work of that spirit. The spirit doesn't lie. He doesn't tell one person one thing and another person something else. He teaches us the one truth about Christ, the one gospel, and thus brings us together. And so we ought to be working towards that agreement. And so you can see that this is a big concern then for Paul. There will inevitably be differences of opinion within the church. And Paul understood that those differences can very easily, very quickly turn into rivalries and conflicts. And brothers and sisters, you know this, we've seen this, we've experienced this if we've been in the church for any length of time. This is common sense diversities of opinion very quickly turn into rivalries and conflicts. And we know that that's the sinful nature within us, desiring that, that difference, enjoying the fact that we believe ourselves to be right and others to be wrong. And so Paul's exhortation throughout this letter is, remember, you share the same spirit. And so be filled with the same love for one another and work towards having the same mind, coming to agreement. And that concern has never been far from Paul's mind. So now in chapter 3, as he, after he is, is finished describing his his own daily pursuit to be counted with Christ, he comes right back again to this theme. 
So that's, that's the first point then. Differences of opinion do exist within any healthy church because we do come to God's word from different perspectives and with different experiences and, if we're honest, with much weakness and frailty of mind. The ultimate goal is agreement, but the present reality is inevitably going to be some degree of disagreement, and, and we're going to have to work those things out. Now let's go back to to verse 15 again, and I'll read again my translation of verse 15. So he says, Let those who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, then God will reveal that also to you. The second point I want to take from these verses is, even before coming to agreement, and indeed in order to come to agreement, we are first called to Christian maturity. And you can see that right there in the beginning of verse 15. If The reality is, yes, differences of opinion will exist among us. If we're going to work those out and come to agreement, we need, first of all, to be mature Christians. You can see that in the connection between the first half of verse 15 and, and the rest of verse 15 and 16. Let those of you who are mature think in this way And the implication is from that starting point, then if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, then God will reveal that also to you. So we can only expect God to reveal the truth to us and to bring us to agreement together if we're first of all pursuing Christian maturity. And if you want to know what that Christian maturity looks like, then just go back to verses 1 through 14. That's obviously what he's referring to. Christian maturity, then, in verses 1 through 14, is characterized by that daily pursuit to forsake oneself and to be counted with Christ. And, and when our lives are, are thus characterized, then we stop caring about winning arguments or, or proving ourselves to be right. And we, we lose that, that natural sinful impulse to, to form political rivalries and parties within the church. When our lives are, are, are all about us and our identity is, is not in Christ, then we use our differences of opinion to, to elevate ourselves and to denigrate others in our church or in other churches, and we try to glorify ourselves and beat others down. That's a sinful impulse that uses the differences of opinion that exist within us to to glorify ourselves and to put down others. When our identity is in Christ, when we're pursuing unity with Christ, then it doesn't matter whether we win or lose an argument. It doesn't matter if we have to sometimes feel small next to a brother or sister who's simply wiser than us, or if we have to learn as we're corrected by them, because it's not about us. It's not about being right. It's about Christ. And then we rejoice in the truth and in whatever promotes the name of Christ, no matter who it comes from. And you can see this so clearly in Paul himself, in his, in his attitude towards the other leaders in the Roman church. If you remember back from chapter 1, these other leaders who had apparently been preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, and they were doing so even in order to afflict him and to add to his sufferings, he says. And yet he says, I'm able to rejoice because at least Christ is being preached. 
For the mature Christian, it's all about the glory and honor that Christ is rightly due. So then think through what Paul is saying here. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, forsaking ourselves and choosing to be counted in Christ, even sharing in his sufferings, even being made like him in his death. Verse 10 Because you want to be counted with him in his resurrection. That's all of 1 through 14. If that's your basic orientation, then you will be able, on the one hand, to learn from other brothers and sisters, Christians who might see things differently than you do. And you will also be able, on the other hand, to correct them and to do so not out of pride or out of a sense of rivalry, but out of genuine love for them and especially for the honor and the name of Christ. It's not to show ourselves right, that's our natural sinful inclination, but to help others grow in the truth and share in the same joy that we ourselves have in Christ. So if your life's orientation is towards being counted together with Christ and promoting his name and his honor, then you will despise any appearance of political rivalry and political parties within the church because that brings down the honor of Christ. And so those of us who love Christ, who want to be counted with Christ, those of us who are mature, as Paul says, we strive for unity and for agreement. So that's the second thing we should see from these verses. Christian, Christian maturity, defined by that life-shaping desire to be counted with Christ, that's the starting place for unity of mind and unity of doctrine and unity of spirit that Paul calls us to. The third thing we want to see in this verse is that God is able to bring us together in the truth where there are disagreements. And he, indeed, he does so. He's not only able to, he does. Listen again to the verse. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, God will reveal that also to you. That's a promise. So that, that unity of mind that we're called to is, is not something that we can accomplish on our own. We recognize that. It's something that God must accomplish or it won't happen. But these words from Paul are a promise to us. If we learn that Christian maturity, if we practice that Christian maturity, then God not only can, but God will bring us together in the truth. He will reveal to us what we may not be seeing ourselves. He will bring us together in unity of mind and unity of conviction in the truth. That's an amazing promise that we ought to, to hold on to. And so when there, are, when there are differences of opinion or differences of approach within the church, let's say, for, for example, between traditional worship and contemporary worship, since that's, that's a very common division in, in modern churches, it's very easy for us to look at that divide and to simply despair and 
People tend to dig in their heels. They form political parties. And the leadership of the church even finds itself dividing and taking part in those political parties and giving in to the pressure from each side. Um, and the, the, ten, the temptation, especially for the leaders, is to just say, let each one have their own way. Let's just go our separate ways. And we can have the liberal church, and we can have the conservative church, and the traditional church, and the contemporary church. And you see this. You see this all over the Christian landscape. Churches that now have two worship services, one for the, the contemporary worshipers and one for the traditional worshipers. And that ought not to be so. That's not the spirit you find here in Philippians. It ought not to be that way. If you look at how often here in Philippians, Paul uh, calls us to come to agreement, to be united in one spirit and one mind, the last way to do that is to say, let's just each go our separate ways. The reality is, we need one another. We need those differences of perspective. We have things to learn from one another. And, <clears throat> and, and so the, the younger members in the church need the wisdom and the perspective of the older members. In Titus 2, Paul exhorts the older members to, to teach the younger members. And often that, that division between young and old or sometimes contemporary and traditional is, is rooted in a lack of teaching, a lack of willingness on the, on the part of the older members to teach, just as much as it's a lack of willingness on the part of the younger members to learn. Well, well that teaching and learning cannot happen if we're all going to different worship services and different Bible studies and different social groups. And it's not just the difference between the old and the young. Of course, we know that. Members of, of different personalities and different preferences also have much to learn from one another. And they can form a healthy church together, not by, by separating. And the promise here is, if you consider yourselves mature Christians who have learned to pursue Christ and to be counted with him above everything, then God will reveal to you the right way forward. God will bring you together in unity of conviction and doctrine and practice and truth. That's a, a promise from God. And so, brothers and sisters, understand that this is the church where Christ has placed you. If you find yourself unable to see eye to eye with other members in the church on, on various issues, that does not give any one of us a license to just go out and look for a church that agrees with us better, and especially to look for a church that matches our type of personality better. That goes 180 degrees against the direction that Paul is calling us towards. The call is to come to agreement. We ought not to, as elders, we ought not to allow people to leave for that reason, and receiving churches ought not to receive them for that reason. The call Paul is to be in the church where Christ has placed you and work towards agreement. And the promise is, with Christian maturity, God will accomplish that among us. And that's true for the Christian church at large, globally as well. It may seem like an impossibility that, that the divide between, let's say, those who practice infant baptism and those who practice adult-only baptism... It, 
It may seem like an impossibility that that divide can ever be healed. And some might say maybe it's time to just ignore our differences for the sake of unity. And there's, there's some truth in that, in the sense that we should be able to recognize each other as brothers and sisters. We should be able to acknowledge the same spirit that works in them just as he does in us. And in that sense, we can put those issues to the side on, on some levels. But we should never stop working towards agreement. Even that divide, as big as it is, is a divide that God is able to heal. He doesn't call us to do something that cannot be done when he calls us to agreement in the truth. And that ought to then be our attitude also towards Christians in other traditions. It's not hostility, but nor is it glossing over our differences. It's unity and love wherever we recognize the same spirit, the same gospel, the same love. It's, it's pursuing that Christian maturity together. It's an openness to discussing our differences. And it's a willingness also to teach scripture to one another and to learn from one another, confident that God can and will bring us together. Well, with that said, Paul does add one warning, and that's our fourth and last takeaway from these verses. Paul does say in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So again, let's understand the flow of thought in in these verses. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue on which you think differently among yourselves, God will reveal that also to you, but let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, we can trust that God will reveal to us the truth. He will reveal to us the way forward as we pursue Christian maturity. But we must also watch that we do not give up what we have already received. And there Paul is almost certainly referring to the gospel message that the Philippians knew, that they had received from him when he first came and and preached there, and and in which they had been then strengthened through other missionaries like Timothy and and through the witness of Epaphroditus and others. Uh, It's important to understand not all agreement is agreement in the truth. Not all unity is unity in the gospel. Not all ecumenicism is from God. There is a kind of ecumenicism that that takes us backwards and further from the gospel. And Paul warns us, don't go down that road. Let us hold true to what we have attained. So we aren't called to agreement simply for the sake of agreement, but we're called to agreement for the sake of the truth and the honor of Christ. When we hear that, of course, that's not a license for us to now dig in our heels and refuse to listen to one another or to anyone else from any other tradition. But, of course, it is a reminder that the goal is the truth of God for the glory of God and for our joy. The goal is not to reduce our doctrine to the lowest common denominator, but but to persuade one another in humility, but in also the truth, to come to agreement. In our pursuit of unity in the truth, we're called to make sure that we don't let go of what we've already gained. And this is a good text to reflect on a few months before the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation did lead to a division in the church, and yet we recognize that division 
was a step forward, not a step backwards. Division is not always a setback in God's purposes. We think also of how God sent the Israelites out into exile. What looked on the surface like a terrible setback, God was using as a step forwards. Division is not always a step back. And, and some divisions need to happen. And God uses them then to further his kingdom and to build his church. There are many calls today to let's come together and, and let's heal that division between us and, and the Roman Catholics. And, and that desire for healing is a good thing in itself. We should try to work for that. And, and we should believe and trust that God will accomplish that one day. We have seen some small reforms in the Roman Catholic Church. Many of the practices that existed then have been reduced and a few have gone away. It's, it's interesting that uh, in Wittenberg there's going to be a big celebration of the Reformation and of all the guests the Pope himself plans to be present to celebrate. Certainly, there, there's hypocrisy behind that, but there is something to be thankful for behind that as well. But, but as we work towards that healing, and we should, we should try to work for that. The reformers themselves worked so hard for that healing. As we do that, it's of the utmost important that we listen to Paul's warning to not let go of what we've gained. Any unity that is gained at the cost of the gospel is a loss. It's a step back. Christian maturity means putting Christ and putting his truth and his gospel above ourselves. And, and so it's above ourselves in the sense that we don't try to prove ourselves right. We'd rather glorify Christ. It's also above us in the sense that putting Christ, we put Christ and his truth above our desires for outward unity. Those, those, that outward unity feels good, but Christ's truth and Christ's honor is more important than, than our sense of having achieved unity. It, and so Paul calls us to treasure Christ, and treasuring Christ means we have, we have too much to lose in any kind of ecumenical effort that, that ultimately undermines the gospel, no matter how worthy that effort might be. And so the healing of the divide between Reformed and Baptist, or between Protestant and Catholic, or even, if you step a thousand years back, between the East and West branches of Christianity, that's a healing that only God can accomplish. And the promise in these verses that is that he will accomplish that healing if we devote ourselves to the Christian maturity that Paul is calling us to. And as we do that, we must make sure we do not let go of what we've attained. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged by these verses. It is a pro- there is a promise here. It's true there are differences of opinion, even among us in this church in Alora and among our Canadian reform circles more broadly. That's inevitable. That will come. And in a way that, that is, in part at least, evidence of a good thing, that we are studying Scripture and coming to conclusions and applying Scripture to our lives, which means occasionally we come to different conclusions. The calling here, though, is that we would learn to forsake ourselves 
that we would not use those disagreements as a launching point for rivalry and strife, which ultimately bring down the name and honor of Christ. The call is to pursue Christian maturity, and the promise is, as we do that, as we strive to count ourselves with Christ above everything else, that God will reveal to us the way forward. He will show us the truth. He will bring us together in unity of mind and spirit. That's true in this church, and it's true between different churches. And the warning then to keep in mind as we work towards that is to let us not let go of what we have attained. It's because we know that Christ lived and died for us that we have unity with one another. It's that gospel that holds us together. We cannot ever let go of that. It's because of him, it's because we belong to him that we belong to one another. It's because we love him that we love one another, even with all our differences. If we let go of him, we also will ultimately lose one another. And so let us not lose what we have gained, because in Christ we have gained the most valuable thing we could ever have gained, the love and the fellowship of the Father. So let's, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9, let's grow in that love And let's grow in that knowledge and discernment. And let's help one another to grow in that knowledge and love together. And as we do so, let's make sure we never let go of that love. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 122, stanza 3.